Hello, friends. Welcome back to another episode of the Mental Corner Podcast, the show where I bring on guests from all different backgrounds to talk all the things mental health. I'm your host, Harry Pavin, and today I have the absolute pleasure of being joined by Lauriane Bessette. Lauriane is a student at Queen's University who was diagnosed with epilepsy when she was 14. Over 360,000 Canadians live with epilepsy, which is around 1 in 100 people, so Lauriane did something super incredible to raise awareness for it. This year, she ran 100 kilometers in 24 hours to raise awareness and fundraise money for epilepsy research. This story is just absolutely incredible. And honestly, when we were talking about it, my legs really started to hurt. I, I can't even imagine. I can barely run 5K, let alone 100. So shout out to Lorian, not only for coming on and sharing her story, but you know for doing all the incredible advocacy work that she does. Now, before we get into the episode today, guys, you know the drill. If you're listening, please like, comment, share, subscribe, give five stars if you're on that podcast platform. Share with someone who might want to hear this episode. It's a really great one, and I can't wait for you to listen. I'll talk to you all very soon. Have a great rest of your day. Peace. Thank you so much for coming on to the show today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. I'm excited to get to know you a little better. So where does your journey with epilepsy kind of start? Like when were the first kind of start starting signs that you had this condition? So it's, it's kind of funny because we're not, a, we're not 100% sure. My entire childhood, my parents always described me as like having like my head in the clouds and just it always seemed like I was daydreaming and zoned out, but it was in grade seven, I believe that I had my first seizure and I went to the doctor and it was passed on as like, Oh, like you didn't eat enough this day or like you're just growing. And I think that happened twice until I had a seizure during cheerleading practice and I actually lost part of my memory. And then my dad took me to the hospital that day and in a sense, I was lucky enough to have a seizure in front of the doctor because the type of seizures that I have are absence seizures. Mm. So it does just look like you're zoned out for a couple seconds or a couple minutes. And as soon as she saw it, she knew exactly what it was. And she was, I got admitted for a few days. So it first started with, um, I think it was an hour EEG where you hooked up to all of the electrodes and they saw that there was some like abnormal spikes. So then I actually went on to do a three-day EEG. And at that point, I want to say I was maybe in grade nine or grade 10. And I was diagnosed with uh, epilepsy at that point on, but they don't know if it's something that had been going on prior or exactly how long it's been going on for. So it's kind of a mystery. Mm, yeah, man, that's, that's wild. So when you experienced that um, seizure during cheerleading practice, like what, what happened? Like, did, did you, were you fine one second and then the next just experiencing a seizure? Yeah. So when I had that one, it was one of the bigger ones where I actually fell to the ground. I could feel like there was something wrong and I was lucky to feel like there was something wrong because I was actually a flyer in cheerleading and it happened during a stunt. Mm. So I went down and I was like, there's something wrong. And that's when I just woke up and it felt like you were just waking up in the morning. Like I just like, opened my eyes but everyone was around me and I was like oh my gosh this isn't like I'm not waking up in my bed this isn't the morning and that's when I was like there's something wrong but 
I had kind of, I, they call them auras, where I just felt like you can't smell anything. Some people describe it as burnt toast, but I don't feel like it smells like burnt toast. I just feel like it smells like nothing and you get lightheaded. So I, I could kind of tell that there was something wrong on. I knew there was something wrong. I knew that I had to get to the ground as soon as possible, mm-hmm. but I didn't really know what was going on exactly either at the same time. Man. And how you said you were in grade nine when this happened, like how, how do you, how does a grade nine kind of like respond to a situation like that? You know, when you're so young and you just have you wake up, you have no idea where you are. Like how, how did you react? I was definitely really freaked out. I think the biggest thing is that everyone around you is so freaked out that like you start freaking out even more. You're like, oh my gosh, what happened? Where, what did I do? Like what's going on? And then obviously my parents came and picked me up and I went home and I didn't know that there was something wrong with me at that point until my parents started asking me questions about the days prior. And they were like, do you remember this? And I was like, what? Like, no, like they were like, we went to the restaurant or it was something like that. Like we went to like get coffee. And I was like, I did like, I had no recollection of that. And that's Mm -hmm. when I started kind of freaking out a little, I was like, wait, there's something wrong. And that part was definitely scary. But other than that, I just, I was like, I'm ready to go on about my day. Like I was like, I got schoolwork to do. I got things to do. Like, I didn't actually know there was something going on with me because all throughout my childhood, the few times I did go to the doctor, they were like, she's just growing. And it's just, so I thought it was just like, I don't know, I missed breakfast or I went really hard that day at cheer practice and I was exhausted. So I, I didn't think there was something wrong, but as soon as that stuff started happening and I started realizing that I had lost bits and pieces of my memory, I was like, okay, there's something more going on. And I was definitely really freaked out. Mm. Now, was it, were you losing like long-term memory or or was it mostly short-term? Short-term. Short-term. Yeah. That's so, that's, that's wild. So when you're, when you finally get diagnosed with having epilepsy, like what, what in that scenario, what is going through your head? Like that are like, how do you take that news? So I feel like personally, it's definitely different for everyone, but I was, um, how old are you in grade nine? Like 14? So, or yeah. something like that, right? 13, 14, I think. Yeah, so doctors didn't actually talk to me. They would come to the room and pull my parents out. And that's something that really freaked me out. Because I was like, mm. they're talking about me. They're talking about my brain. And they can't talk to me about it. And I obviously knew there was something wrong. Because they were doing test after test. And these doctors were talking to my parents. And I was like, okay, if it was something minor and it wasn't a big deal they just be like, you're fine, go home. But I had been in the hospital for three days at that point. So I was like, okay, there's something going on. There's something obviously wrong. And the fact that I didn't know what was going on because they were talking to my parents was terrifying. And then I got put on medication and you stay in the hospital. I think it was maybe like a day or two just to make sure that you don't have any like adverse reaction to that medication. But after that, I knew I had epilepsy, but I honestly didn't know what that meant. So I was like, okay, I got epilepsy. I'm going to go back to my life now. Like it didn't mean anything to me. I didn't really understand what it was until I was 16. And I was like, oh my gosh, I can drive. I'm going to go get my driver's license. And I got denied. Mm. And that's when I was like, wait, like, (laughs) what do you mean I can't drive? What do you mean there's stuff that I can't do that other people can do? And that's when I kind of realized I was like, this might be a bit more serious than 
I don't know, just having to take my medication in the morning and at night. Right. Yeah. Before the 16 thing, like when you were going back to school right after you had this diagnosis, like, was there a tough integration back into your friend group and like your school or was it just kind of like back to normal? So I actually ended up having to switch schools. I went back to school and a few of my friends weren't comfortable hanging out with me alone because they were scared I'd have a seizure or teachers would point out, we'd talk about something that we had learned a couple lessons prior and in front of the class, they'd say like, oh, Lauren, if you don't remember, it's okay, just come to me after class. Mm. So, which was really hard because like, nobody wants to accept that there's something wrong with them and nobody wants to broadcast that to everybody, especially when you're grade nine and your reputation means so much to you. So I'd come home to my parents and I'd cry and be really upset. Like I had lost some friends, uh, just being pulled, like pointed at during class was so difficult. So we made the decision and we had to talk to the other school because I was trying to switch. It was like, start of November so the semester had started so long ago so we had to make all of these plans with the school explaining to them why I had to switch and a big part of it was for my mental health Mm -hmm. and that's why I was actually able to switch so late within the semester so it's definitely hard but when I switched to the new school I didn't tell anybody why I had switched or what was wrong with me I just kept it a secret I just said that I had I moved here, went to a new school, and that was it. So nobody really knew. Mm. That's tough, too, in grade nine, because when you're in high school and the start of high school, especially, like you're trying to find yourself and you're trying to find what your identity is almost. So, I mean, when you have this label on you right away from the jump, it's like how you just identify with this condition. It's not very fair. Yeah, no. And you have all of these eyes around you and like people talk and it's just, it's a hard thing for sure. And I empathize with like everyone who has to go through anything like that because it's hard. Mm, yeah. Straight up. Now, when you went to the new school, was it like a, was it a fresh start? Did anyone eventually find out about your condition or was it just kind of a whole new adventure, I guess? So it was a fresh start at the beginning of it. Um, Nobody knew, but as time went on, people slowly started figuring out what had happened to me. But I feel it wasn't until it was later and people didn't judge as much and they didn't say anything about it. I think the big part that was hard was sometimes people would do like those fake seizures where they like shake. And I was like, that's that's not okay. That's not something that you do. Like you don't make fun of like disabilities or people who are diagnosed with a disability. So that was definitely hard. And that made me feel like I didn't actually have a fresh start, even Mm. though some of these people didn't know that I was diagnosed with epilepsy. They were just doing it as a mockery. To me, I was just kind of like, this isn't fair. This isn't, you can't be making fun of people, even if you don't know that somebody around you within your circle is diagnosed with a certain disability. So even though it felt, it was kind of a fresh start, there were certain points of it that I was like, this isn't fully a fresh start. It's not the fresh start that I wanted because obviously, ideally my fresh start would be that it was just a seizure and I don't have epilepsy and it was just a one-time thing, but that's not the situation. Right. Yeah. And like, how can you be your true authentic self when you see people doing that stuff next to you? Yeah, it's definitely, and it's hard to call out people too. 
And I think that's something that as I've grown, now it's something that I'm definitely able to do when I see any behaviors or anything like that that are inappropriate. I'm able to say like, hey, that's maybe don't say this word or that's not right. But when you're in high school, you don't want to be judged and you don't want to be hated. So you just kind of let everything fly, even though it gets to you. Especially at a new school. You don't yeah. want to be that. You don't want to be that person. No, you don't. And I was already labeled as like the new kid and the French kid. And I was like, I don't need an extra label on myself. Oh my God. Yeah. Just add them all. Oh my yeah. goodness gracious. So you were talking about, <clears throat> excuse me. You're talking about, uh, like when you were, when you turned 16, you weren't allowed to drive. Um, what were some other like limitations that you experienced maybe starting at 16 where you were kind of like, Oh, this is, this is a real thing now. And then how, like, how did you register these limitations? Like, how were you, were you able to accept that you weren't going to live the life of a normal 16, 17 teenager? Yeah. So the first limitation I was told is when I was in the hospital, they were like, you'll never be able to uh, fly a plane. And Mm. I was like, okay, that's, I don't want to be a pilot. So that's fine. And I thought that that's, that's all it was going to be. I was like, okay, that's fine. But then there was a driver's license, which was probably the first time that it really hit me that I was like, wait, all of my friends get to have their their driver's license and I don't get to have mine until I had notes from the doctor and you had to be cleared for a year. And then following that in high school, I didn't feel it that much. But once I got to university, there's a big big emphasis on partying at university and Mm -hmm. going out and drinking and those drugs and all of that sort of stuff. And it was always in the back of my mind that I was like, I can't do all of these things. I can't go out for two days straight because I could have a seizure or I can't binge drink or I can't do all of these things. And that's when it kind of hit me. And my doctor actually asked me if I want to get off my medication And I did because I just, I wasn't taking it anymore properly. I was super forgetful of it. And I was like, you know what? I haven't had a seizure. I'm fine. I don't have epilepsy anymore. And in second year, I got admitted to the hospital for a three-day EEG just to see how I was doing. And that's when they saw that I had tons of abnormal waves throughout that EEG and I had to be put back on medication. So I still didn't have a license at that point. It had been over a year, a year and a half that I had lost my license. And that was hard in university. You want your freedom. I don't want to be telling my mom like, Hey mom, can you go drop me off at this party? Can you go dress me off at this guy's house? Like that's the last thing you want to do. (laughs) Yeah, no. (laughs) So that's when it really hit me. I was like, I'm not like everyone else. And I didn't really know how to comprehend that. And I also had my housemates, which I obviously had to tell them that I was epileptic when I moved in with them and they started pointing out, they were like, low, you're not here. You're not with us. Like they would. And that's when I was like, oh my gosh, other people can see it because I can't feel it. Like, I don't, I didn't know these were happening, but like, no, like we were talking to you and you weren't here. And I was like, almost embarrassed. I was like, other people can see that there's something wrong with me and there's something going on. So I went back on medication and yeah, so now I'm on medication until, I mean, there's no timeline anymore, but until they find a cure, hopefully. Mm-hmm. 
Now, in that year where, like, the year before you did your EEG, did you ever notice changes? Like, because when you said you were on it, there were abnormal waves. Like, did you ever feel those abnormal waves before the EEG or were they just kind of passing? Um, I would feel it's such a hard feeling to explain. I, I could tell sometimes that I was zoned out or felt like I was daydreaming. I would miss piece of the conversation and I didn't really understand why. I knew that I had epilepsy, but prior to, it was just such a weird feeling because I was like, oh, you know what? I was up till two in the morning doing work. I must be tired or trying to find all of these excuses other than it's my epilepsy because I didn't want to believe that that's what it was. So there was these parts where I would miss conversations and I would try to justify it. But then I started having these feelings of it's almost like you're not in your own body. Mm-hmm. And it feels like derealization. And that's, I knew there was something wrong. And I knew that I had to go back to get tested. Right. And then when you, when you eventually had to get back on medication, like w- w- the frustration level that you experienced, well, like, w- like, how did you register that? Like, was it just kind of like, well, I guess I'm doing this again. Or was it like just frustration and annoyance? So it was a little bit of both. I was super frustrated and super annoyed. But at the same time, when I was doing my EEG, we were two in the room. And the person that was beside me, um, that person's epilepsy was very severe and couldn't do anything. They had to live with their parents, even though they were much older than me. They weren't able to do anything because they had grand mal seizures extremely frequently. So I just remember thinking at the same time, even though I was super frustrated, I was like, wow, I'm lucky that I can still live my life as normal as I can, while a lot of other people who are diagnosed with epilepsy have bigger limitations than me. And it was actually at that point that I was like, I want to do something. I want to be able to raise awareness for epilepsy and I want to be able to raise money for a cure because I can do it. Mm-hmm. And I know a lot of people who are diagnosed with epilepsy would love to do that, but they might not be able to. Right. Yeah. You want to, you want to be that voice for the people who can't. Yeah. That's awesome. So in terms of like, like going through this whole story and then kind of stopping at university for a second, like when your friends would tell you like you, you weren't here with us and then you start to realize like, oh, I'm not like people, other people can see this too. I have to imagine that it feels like you almost don't rec- like recognize who you are anymore because you're in and out of consciousness. So in your situation, like how hard was it to experience like self-love and self-acceptance? Like how did, how were you able to get over that hump and eventually just be accepting of who you are as a person? I think it took a long time and it's still something that I'm working on it's still something that I find really difficult to go out there and say that I diagnosed with epilepsy and I'm living with this. Um, I'm still obviously working on it every day. And hopefully that's something that at some point I'll achieve that is just part of who I am. And it doesn't make me any different than anyone else. And I can still love myself and people around me still love me. But I think a big part of it stems from when I was diagnosed at a young age and people started rejecting me from it. It kind of put that in my head that I was like, well, nobody's going to want to be my friends and nobody's going to want to love me because I have this baggage that I'm bringing with me. So 
it's still something that I work on every day for sure. Yeah, then no, that I can imagine that's tough. And you going off what you just said, like when people are kind of hesitant to be your friend or hesitant to talk to you about it or you know on the other end of that like when people are hesitant to open up there's such a stigma around epilepsy and like the condition as a whole but like you've said on your website one in a hundred people experience it and that's a relatively high number in terms of population so with something that's occurring so frequently like why are we so hesitant to talk about it I'm honestly not sure part of it I think is the um, I think a huge part of it might come from the movies how people perceive epilepsy and how it's it's shown to the public it's not actually what it is but I think if I wasn't diagnosed with epilepsy and didn't know anyone diagnosed with epilepsy and all I knew was from movies where you see people shake and foam from their mouth and I think I'd be terrified too and I think the best way to get over that too is to educate yourself, to know more about what it is. And like you said, one in a hundred is a huge number. Odds are, you know, someone, whether it's within your circle or within your family that does have epilepsy or some, someone that you know. Hmm, yeah, I my, my cousin got diagnosed with it and I was like, I, I forget what year it was, but I wasn't very old. And I just remember going back to the movies and what I saw in the media. I was like, oh, great. She's going to be foaming at the mouth all the time and like yeah. seizing up and eyes rolling back. It's just like that's the image that people have in their heads of epilep- epilepsy. It's it's unfortunate. And you can't blame them because that's the image that's been put out there for so long that is just what it is and even when you go back because I was doing research on it and you go back and they used to think that people with epilepsy were witches mm. way back in the day and all of these little things so it's been a stigma that's been around this this disease or disability for so long that it's hard to blame people for thinking that it's a certain thing even though it's not because the information isn't put out there enough of exactly what it is and exactly what it looks like and there's also so many different variations of epilepsy that it's hard to explain the thousand ways that it can show itself yeah no that that's the other thing too right and i've talked about this on the show like mental health in general like there's so many different types of mental health challenges and mental illnesses and everything and they all impact people different ways so it's the same with epilepsy where it's like you can't just pinpoint one like it would be so easy if it was just like the same symptoms for everyone and it's like this is what it always is but it's never (laughs) like that so everyone's like ah what do i believe i don't know yeah it's no that's for sure yeah no man it's it's tough um now this is why i love what you're doing because there's like you just mentioned there is a stigma around epilepsy, but much unlike the other like depression, anxiety and other conditions like epilepsy kind of gets swept under the rug. In my opinion, I mean, yeah. my nothing I see on me- social media talks about epilepsy. Um, and I don't know what, why that is. Maybe it is the lack of education or I don't know. I, I don't know what it is, but that's why I love what you're doing because you're bringing awareness to something that occurs in so many people. But again, is just not mentioned as much as it should because I mean like with that stigma around it's so hard for people who experience that to open up and on that note when you opened up about being an advocate for this stuff like how intimidating was it to kind of make your platform and 
come out to social media essentially be like i'm advocating for this because i experience it it was the scariest thing i've ever done i i can't even put it into words but i started by talking about it to my mom and my dad and i didn't know what the plan was and i just said that i wanted to show everyone what epilepsy was and show them that there's no limitations. When I was younger, I was told by my neurologist that university was a stretch. Mm. And I want to show any little girl or boys that were 13, 14 that, no, it's not. You can do whatever you want to do. And that was my, that's what I wanted to do the whole time. And I had my parents support. And that's all that really mattered to me is that my parents were behind me and I've been lucky enough to always have them support me through no matter what I do. So that was huge. And then I, I told my housemates about it and they were supportive. And I was like, I'm going to do it. Cause as long as the people close to me and who love me were able to support me, it didn't matter what other people were thinking. Right. Yeah. No, that's beautiful. You had, you had a really supportive base going in. That's helpful. It was. Man. And when did the run when did that come about? Like, when when did you sit down? Because 100 kilometers is far. Like, when when were you like, I'm going to do a 100-kilometer run? What, what, where did that inspiration come from? I, I'm not a runner. Like, I know <laughs> okay. I say that now, but I'm not a runner. I wasn't a runner before this. I ran short distances, like 10 kilometers, and I enjoyed it. But I was looking at stats, and I was like, 100 kilometers, and I was like, It'd be so cool to run a hundred kilometers in 24 hours. And as soon as I get an idea in my head, I just got to do it. And, <laughs> and it was probably the craziest idea I've ever had. And I remember telling my parents and my parents were like, can she just do a marathon or a half, half marathon? And I was like, no, I was like, it's got to catch people's attention because if I run 10 kilometers, it won't catch people's attention as much as saying I'm going to run a hundred kilometers. And this is why, and this is what's going on within your community and with people around you, it's one in a hundred people. So I just needed something that was going to catch people's attention to be able to break that stigma. But it just came out of nowhere. I was sleeping. I'm pretty sure. And I was like playing it then. I was like, that'd be cool. I got to do it. And then I messaged epilepsy Canada and they were like, we're on board. We're in. So then I, I had to train for it. Were they like, are you sure? They did. They were like, are you a runner? And I was like, well, <laughs> no, not really, but I got it. Like I can do it. And the whole time people were like, you know what? Even if you just do 10, you still did part. And I was like, no, I was like, I'm doing a hundred. It's in my head. I'm going to do a hundred. And now even saying it now that I've done it, it just sounds crazy. If someone came up to me and was like, I'm running hundred kilometers in 24 hours, I'd be like, good for you. That's crazy. Like, that's amazing. You know what though? You did it. It's on yeah. paper. You did it. It's on record. Now training for that, because you just said that you've never ran, you had never run over 10 K. And I mean, personally, I, I was a swimmer. I was never a runner, but 10 K, like I was sore for about a month after. So how do you train to go from 10 to 100. What's that look like? So it took me about a year 
So basically the idea came up in August and I ran at the start of August. It was about a year and it was, I was training five days a week, um, two days within that. So I was running all five days, two of those days, I would also have strength training, but it's not as crazy as you would think. There was only one day a week where I would do a really long run and I would slowly increase it by, I think it was something like three kilometers every week. And all I had to run was 50 kilometers for training because the rest of it supposedly was going to come from adrenaline and the day of, which it mm. did, obviously. And I honestly, it was, it was exhausting. It made me hate running for a little while. I remember calling my mom and I was like, I'm never running again. But it was definitely a lot of training. But the support that I had around me and the day of the run is what made me be able to push myself so much further and the messages that I would get from strangers I would have weeks where I was like I don't want to train and I don't want to do this and I would get messages saying that someone's sister or someone's brother or friend had passed away from epilepsy which is to death or was diagnosed and I was like I gotta do this not just for me but I want to do this for everyone who doesn't have that voice anymore who isn't able to do it so I think that's where all of the energy came from was definitely pulling from people and yeah. Yeah, for <laughs> sure. And did your, did your epilepsy ever come into play in terms of training or like, did, did it ever um, get triggered? Um, not that we know of. It's something that we're really nervous about as well. I definitely had to make sure that my nutrition was amazing. Like I had a nutritionist that made my plan for me. And then my sleep schedule, everything had to be so intact and so perfect because I was scared that the smallest deviation would cause a seizure. And then, so it was just making sure that everything was so perfectly balanced that I didn't give myself, not didn't give myself, but that I would be able to do this training without having a seizure. Right. But again, with having silent seizures, like absence seizures, I'm hoping I didn't have any, but it's not something that I know at a hundred percent. Right. Yeah. Well, I think, I think the best part about all of that is that, you know, when you're a young kid and you, you mentioned this a little earlier, when you're a young kid and you're labeled or diagnosed with epilepsy, the doctor already gave you limitations. They already said like university is a stretch and you're not going to be able to do this and that. And these kids are just filled with, you're not going to do this. You're not going to do that. So when you come out here and you go, listen, I have this condition and I just ran a hundred kilometers. Like, <laughs> I mean, if that doesn't show kids that they can do whatever they put their mind to, then I don't know what, the, what says it. Yeah. I think that's definitely something that needs to change within the, um, neurology department I guess is how to talk to kids and even adults because as soon as you start telling people that there's certain things they can't do when a doctor is telling you that you can't you're not going to be able to do this when you're older you can't do that in the future you're like well you're a doctor you know there's mm -hmm. if you're telling me there's no way but it's not true I think if you set your mind to it it's something that you can do sometimes it might be different than what you'd expected in the past but you can still do all of these things and I think it's definitely something that needs to change. And it's a conversation that needs to be had that this condition isn't going to stop you from achieving what you want to achieve. Right. Yeah. And 
yeah, it especially talking like that to a kid because you're so easily influenced. Like yeah. immediately, you just go, "Well, you're right. I can't." Yeah. Then it's like, like we'll never know what they can achieve because they just no. immediately put that limitation. They're like, "Eh, I'm not gonna get here, so it's fine." Yeah, if you don't try it, you're yeah. like, "Oh, Papa told me I can't do it." Not even gonna bother. But at the end of the day, that kid could have done this certain things that they were told they weren't able to. And I think that goes with more than epilepsy. I think there's a lot of conditions um, and disabilities that the, all of these limitations are put on children. And right away, they're like, I'm not going to try to get there because I was told that I can't do it. And I think that's something that definitely needs to change. Yeah, no, a hundred percent. And that like, I get the diagnose the, the diagnosing and the, the labeling and everything. And it, it like, it serves a purpose, but at the same time, like, and I can only speak from a mental health perspective, but you know, they labeled me before ever doing a test or ever doing anything. They just kind of labeled me. And then that was my personality in the medical world. It's like, you know, as a guy who's just looking for answers, if that's all I am, then I feel pretty worthless. Yeah. To be honest. So I, I completely agree with you in the sense where like, she's putting these limitations on these kids. Like it's, I see where they're coming from in the sense, like, they're trying to protect the kids and like, Hey, I've seen this before and this is what happened, but uh, there's gotta be a way around the, you can't do this. Yeah. There's gotta be a better way to talk, to say these things and to talk to them for sure. Because like you said, I feel like it's stopping a lot of children from achieving various things, which they could. Right. Yeah. hundred percent. So with the run, was it straight? Or was it broken up? Like, did you just, did you run it all like a hundred K no stopping? So I had probably the most amazing team, which was made up of my family. Mm -hmm. And basically I, <laughs> I didn't know what I was doing. I was like, I'm going to run in a straight line and run back. <laughs> and my dad was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like, no, that's, you can't do that. He was like, there's elevations. There's all of these things. So I wasn't actually taking charge of any of the logistics behind it. It was all my mom and my dad, which I'm so thankful for. So it was a giant loop and it was at different length. But basically I started here with all of my family and everyone who have been supporting me since the start. And then I would stop every approximately 10K to get some food, get some water, change clothes if I had to or anything like that and at these 10k someone new would come and join me so I never actually ran alone which was probably the best part and it was so nice to have such an amazing support team and have all of these people run with me I had my older sister who had a baby four months prior actually run with me wow and that was amazing and I had my grandma who's I think she's 75 years old now which did 5k with me and all of these people, it was just such a boost of energy. And I don't think I could have done it without them jumping in at different points throughout my run. Mm -hmm. It's almost like a great kind of full circle thing where when you were first diagnosed, like your team was all that you had essentially to begin with. And now they're here running with you. Like they've got yeah. your back the whole time. That's, that's beautiful. I love that. It was 
amazing. It was so nice to have them have my back. Cause like you said, they've been there since day one. It was my aunt and uncle and cousins, my parents, I had my sisters and then I had friends jump in and it's all people that have seen what I've gone through and seen what epilepsy is like. And they were just there to support this cause and support me. And it was so amazing to just see everyone come together. It was such a great feeling. Mm, Yeah, I can imagine. So when you were done the race, like what were the conversations like afterwards in terms of social media and like friends and people who may have not really been knowledgeable of the whole epilepsy thing? Like what were those conversations like after you did your 100K? I think they were conversations that were easy like not easier to have but people kind of realized that I was able to do things that everyone else can do but also go above and beyond so when I would explain to them that I have epilepsy they didn't see those limitations because they were like well you have epilepsy and one in a hundred people have epilepsy but look what you guys can do Mm. and it's almost like it broke that stigma of there's a limitation these people won't be able to achieve the same things as others, which was the conversation was probably 10 times easier than it was when I was training for my run and trying to explain to people what epilepsy was. Right. Yeah. I love that. It just smashed, smashed the stigma. It was, yeah, it for sure did. That's and I'm hoping that it continues to smash the stigma. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I was just going to ask what's next. Like how, how do you top a hundred K run? So we are going to be working with Epilepsy Canada again, not this upcoming summer, but next summer, I'll be doing a hundred kilometer run again, but one in a thousand people diagnosed with epilepsy will die from SEDEP, which is sudden unexpected death in epilepsy. So people are going to be hearing it on your podcast first, but my team all together will be doing a thousand kilometers. Like Lorian, <laughs> like thousand, like congrats! No, that's actually awesome, and like wow, a mental corner exclusive. You could bike. I don't know a thousand run. That's crazy. Who yeah. do you have on your team that agreed to do that? I've had a lot of people who joined throughout my run who agreed to do that. I have my aunt who's agreed to do that. I have my uncle who actually ran virtually in Quebec who wants to do it as well. One of my dad's really good friend. I know my sister wants to jump in. One of my best friends, my boyfriend. So everybody's just so stoked. And it's something that my dad came up with because he said the same thing as you. He was like, well, you run 100K, what's next? What's Mm. the next thing? And I was like, I don't, I don't know. And he was like a thousand kilometers. And I was like, are you crazy? (laughs) Like there's me? And he was like, no, as a team. And so obviously the ideas in my head now, it's not going anywhere. So it's going to happen. I'm making it happen. My team's going to make it happen. And we're super stoked about it. Man, you and your team are insane in the best way possible. That is awesome. That's good luck with that. I'm going to keep tabs on that. I'm going to, I won't. I can't be on your team, Lorianne. I'm so sorry. I can't run 100K. I know my body too well. But I will cheer from the sidelines with a little like uh, cheerleading pom-poms or something. That's perfect. That's what we need. We need the supporters and we need people like you who are breaking stigma surrounding mental health and any sort of condition. So you're already doing 
way above and beyond. Perfect. I will stick to that because I don't know, <laughs> like even the training sounds like it hurts. So I guess my last question for you, Lorianne, if there's someone listening who may be struggling with like self-acceptance or self-confidence who has been in the same shoes that you have in terms of they just got diagnosed with epilepsy or they've been living with it for a while and it's it's hard to accept that you're going to grow up a little differently or you know it's hard to accept these you can't do this you can't do that that you've been fed as a kid what would you want to tell them if you were in a room with them right now I would tell them that the friend's beautiful that unique is beautiful when you go outside and you see that one leaf that looks different or that one butterfly that's different than the other you're always going to point it out and say how beautiful it is and you just got to remember that you have your family and you have your friends and no matter what they're there to support you and they love you and you can lean on them and you have them there for you you're going to grow up to do amazing things. You just got to set your mind to it because there's no limitations. You can shoot for the scars. You can shoot for the moon. You'll land on it. I love it. If people want to follow you in the next two years with this 1,000 kilometer run, like where can they find you, support you, support the run? Uh, yeah, where can they find you? Um, so definitely on my Instagram, Lauren Bessett underscore. There's also, I'm going to start posting again on my one in 100 kilometer for epilepsy which is also on instagram and those are probably gonna best the best two spots to follow me within the next year when i jump back into training and then once we're in 2023 and the run is there then it's definitely gonna start being broadcasted on different medias awesome i'll put those links down below lorianne thank you so much for coming on this has been a pleasure thank you so much for having me it's been amazing and to all my listeners I will see you guys next time.